Welcome to episode 201 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Max Schoening. He's currently at Google working on Google Cloud. Before that, he co-founded Canvas. Before that, he was a designer at Heroku. And before that, he founded Cloud App. Cloud App. Yes. Cloud App. Correct. It's great to catch up with him. Before we get into the show, thank you so much to our sponsors who made this episode possible. If you've been following along, our first sponsor should be no surprise, Fuse. Fuse is letting you build native iOS and Android apps with less code and better collaboration. Basically, in the modern day development product cycle, it's a giant pain in the ass to have to designers do, to and do literally anything. To do literally anything. But you have a design team doing one thing and a developer team doing one thing. And assets are getting thrown over the fence. Things are always out of sync. You're always having to figure out how to collaborate with the people that are actually building things. You know what's a really bad thing to put in your office? A fence. Don't put a fence in your office. That's dumb. Put a fuse in your office. Fuse is really working on this problem, making it easy for designers and developers to collaborate in real time using the same tools, the same underlying infrastructure, the same components so that a change from the design team is reflected in the engineering side and vice versa so that everyone's in sync, everyone knows what changes were made. And as a result, you build apps better, faster, stronger, wiser, with a lot less QA and nudging and making sure everything's perfectly aligned because you're all looking at the exact same things. But you still have to make sure those things work. Yeah. Just to be clear. (laughs) No, no, no. They should work. They just make it easier to work. Uh, Fuse is a really awesome suite of tools. Uh, Their latest release is Fuse Studio, which makes it incredibly easy to test and build all of your apps that all compile to native code. And that's included in their professional plan, which Includes a ton of stuff, a UI kit that they built called UX kit, uh, premium charts, camera components that let you actually like add stickers to a live camera feed and all that stuff. It adds Xcode and Android Studio integrations so that you can build things in your existing native app projects. It's pretty insane. The way I think about it is if you're going to spend time learning something technical, you now have an option besides learning a prototyping tool. You have an option to actually learn a tool that outputs a real app. So whether you're a designer that's just been interested in making something, or if you're working with a team that needs a better workflow, Fuse is going to make it really easy to write, test, build, and release production-ready apps. So how can you get started? Go to fusetools.com. They have all their documentation, tons of examples. You can look through all their features. Uh, Check out Fuse Studio, all the, the screenshots and descriptions of what's going on there. It's an amazing product. Uh, super excited that they are working on this problem in the industry, something that Brent and I care deeply about, and it's something that you should try. The Fuse Pro plan isn't meant for everyone. It's meant for teams. If that includes you, if you are someone who tries it out and likes it and wants it, you can save 50% off on a year by using promo code Design Details at checkout. But if you're not part of a team or you just want to try and test it, the Fuse platform itself uh, is free and it's still incredibly powerful. You're not constrained. It still lets you build production-ready apps. Uh, so if you are a designer that just wants to prototype or get into app development, this is such a perfect, stop, accessible... Stop right there. You shouldn't be prototyping anyway. Just build the damn thing. Yeah, and this there's nothing more accessible than what Fuse is working on. So team or not, go to fusetools.com. Uh, if you are part of a team, use the promo code Design Details at checkout. That'll get you 50% off that professional plan. Thanks once again to Fuse. Our second sponsor is Figma. And they want you to take my job. They are hiring for two jobs and they want two of you to fill those two jobs that they're hiring for. So they sponsored us to hire for the designer advocate role, which is my old job. And you should take it. And it's a very good job. It's really awesome. So what they're looking for is someone to kind of 
build their community, support their community by producing assets, by producing content, by just enabling more people um, to, to Writing build tutorials, more tutorials, making videos, networking with people that are actually using the tool and understanding their problems, helping them understand what's possible with Figma. It's a ton of work, but it is super rewarding and it's super, super fun to get to do. Uh, getting to spend time with designers is always a good time. Uh-huh. The other role is a writer. This is a position that I work with all the time. There's one other writer on the team. Her name's Carmel. She's fantastic. And they're building out this content library that is going to be just incredible for enabling people to work better and faster with more resources in their pocket. I love the Figma team. I was there on Friday for my old manager's anniversary. Uh-huh. And that was the coolest thing. Like, they I love do, hanging out with that team. They do tons of meetups here in San Francisco. Their team is supportive of the design community. They're supportive of designers in general. Uh, I can't think of, and office is awesome. Uh, I can't think of a more excellent team and company to work for. Uh, If you're looking for a job and want to be a design advocate or design writer, go to figma.com slash careers. Uh, Obviously, if you're a designer and you're not using Figma, you should start using Figma. Uh, It's an interface design tool in the browser with real-time collaboration with your team. It's pretty amazing. We use it. You should use it. That's at figma.com. Thanks so much to Figma for sponsoring the show. Finally, coming up quick is the Vectors Conference here in San Francisco. If you're going, uh, join our community on Spectrum at spectrum.chat slash vectors. Uh, We're bringing everyone in there so we can chat about the conference as we get closer to it. And then during the conference, we're going to be having viewing parties and chatting about the the talks and posting videos. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's at spectrum.chat slash vectors. If you didn't manage to get a ticket, don't worry, we'll have all these watch parties and conversations happening online in real time on June 15th here in San Francisco. And you can check those out, get in line, get ready, spectrum.chat slash vectors. That's it. Thanks to everyone who made the show possible. Fuse, Figma, and Vectors. Go check them all out. With that, let's get into episode 201 with Max Schoening. Hey, I'm Max. Uh, I'm currently a product manager at Google. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was a product designer working on my own startup, Canvas. We can talk about that Thank a little you. later. And uh, I, a long time ago, I uh, co-founded CloudApp, the screenshot sharing tool. Mm-hmm. And in between, I worked at Heroku and led the product design team over there. Good. Great insights. Very precise. It's my Twitter uh, t- Twitter bio. What do you do when you're not uh, designing and building things? Wait, how else would you describe yourself? There's a work-life balance. I was <laughs> not aware of these things. <laughs> what are other things? I I like hiking, uh-huh. which the Bay Area is awesome for. Yeah. I love assembling IKEA furniture. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I realized this. Are recently. you being sarcastic? Uh, no, I I really <laughs> enjoy it. It's a so. Is it like a grown-up Legos I thing? Is, I, I think it's <laughs> the a, worst kind. as a product designer that's primarily making software, you're always working with very intangible things. And so there is this, uh, you see this quite a bit where developers go into, oh, I want to do carpentry or I want to do, <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I'm that's familiar. Yeah. I, actually, Sam Sophus uh-huh. yeah, is seems to be really into carpentry. And really into it. So I think that's too advanced for me. So I want the assem- the instructions. <laughs> and so I just enjoy assembling IKEA furniture. So if you ever need anything assembled, just call me. I'll gladly come over and, and help you out. You know people get paid to do that, right? I, f- I feel like that's I, like... I think it's a service that IKEA provides, right? 
Uh, well, there's also like as a kid, I would get a new Lego set and I'd be like, "Hey, you want to come build this with me?" It's like that. <laughs> it, yeah. it really feels like grown-up Legos. There was recently, I think, on Hacker News, floating around uh, a blog post that explains the IKEA effect, which is people are more likely to be emotionally attached to a piece of furniture if they have to assemb- go through some work and have to assemble it themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think they were constra- contrasting it to maybe Blue Apron, one of these food hmm. delivery mm-hmm. services and how they started out with microwavable food but no one really wants to serve microwavable food to their significant other or their kids mm-hmm. and so on and so if they just break it up into the individual components and there's some process some some cooking involved suddenly they feel good about themselves and it's and so maybe there's a little bit of that in there i don't know interesting i'm well, into that i'm i'm just pro other people cooking like i think that's very good for them brian doesn't know how to cook Excuse you, I cook every morning that I'm here. He cooks himself a Soylent? No, no, Pour no. some hot water into smokes? Okay. I eat oatmeal every day and it is <laughs> That's a cooking, huh? goddamn masterpiece. <laughs> Bowl of oats, hot water, banana, three strawberries, handful of blackberries, handful of blueberries, brown sugar. This has been Coffee. oatmeal details. All right. Uh, every- Thank you for, for the insight. <laughs> You're very welcome. Not many people know this recipe. It's pretty advanced. I don't have breakfast. Why? Because my commute takes so long that I just, and I like to sleep. I love sleeping. Actually, that's what I do instead of assembling IKEA furniture. I'm Max and I like to sleep. (laughs) It's the period, the best thing. Hmm. (laughs) I'm going to leave it at that. What's your average a night? Uh, I wouldn't know. I tried sort of quantifying my sleep, but all the tools are somewhat terrible and you always have to remember to t- turn them on and then turn them off i would My say friend, ask, ask Brynn about his his bed his I, I have a smart oh, mattress have, oh i see it's great <laughs> uh eight hours is minimum okay you sleep eight eight, eight hours oh, wow yeah that's great not living the startup life anymore no that's great i respect that nice so what are you working on now with that commute life I work at Google now, like I said, and I work on the Google Cloud platform Uh and specifically on the nebulous term that is serverless. Uh So that would be Google Cloud Functions and uh, App Engine. What does serverless mean? Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows. (laughs) (laughs) But they told me I'm working on it, so... I'm not a huge fan fan of the term serverless but the battle has been lost it's such a buzzword that you can't really you have to just follow along the reason i don't like it is because it defines what it's not versus what it is Mm -hmm. um serverless can either mean that you just write your app code and you're happy and you don't have to worry about running servers and infrastructure and scaling so literally in the word and then it can it often gets conflated with things like functions as a service, Lambda, and and so on, Mm -hmm. which is just a different programming model. And you're a product manager? I am a product manager, which is has largely to do with the fact that there is no developer experience design function to some degree. So why not? I don't haven't been around for long enough. This is my sixth week at Google. I haven't been around long enough that I can s- say with certainty. I would assume that it's 
just a function of maturity. Um, it's not a role that is widely popular in other places either. And so a Google Cloud Platform as a thing has been around, well, App Engine has been around for maybe a decade, but the rest hasn't been around for more than three or four years, I think. Don't quote me on this. Snapchat's particularly well-known for operating on Google Cloud apps. I think App Engine. They run on App Engine, yes. Yeah, they're, they're the one of the biggest customers and proponents. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious, Like, do people not think that a designed developer experience is good or it's just not worth investing in because developers will figure it out? Because I've used the documentation for all the Google Cloud stuff and it's okay. I think, I think there's room for improvement. I agree. I think you have to tease apart what development experience means. Yes. Obviously, there is a huge org of user experience designers, user experience researchers. And there are developers, too, that focus on how the APIs are designed and, and the CLIs. And I think when you frame it, developer experience, at least as the way that I interpret it, is fusing those two worlds somewhat together. So taking general UX principles that apply to how you design consumer products and taking how engineers like to use products and sort of fusing those together. And that's not really a common role, I would say. So there is obviously an admin console on, yeah. on Google Cloud. And largely that design is driven by product managers and the UX team. Okay. But if you wanted to reason about, well, what does serverless mean? And what should the experience of someone using a serverless product look like? Does it fall into the X bucket or product management? It's kind of arbitrary. And so I was it was chosen for me, but the choice that was made was uh, product management. So Is this your first product management role? I At Heroku, I was also the product manager for the Heroku dashboard, which is interesting because I wouldn't necessarily say it's a product. It's just an interface to a product. But So it's not the first role. And at Canvas, as a startup, you wear many hats. Sure. So, But Kinda. I've never officially been labeled a product manager. I see. And what's interesting is but I think there's probably no other role that is so different based on the org that you're in. Mm-hmm. Product manager can mean completely different things in very different companies, whereas UX design kind of always means the same thing. Roughly. Does it? <laughs> it means you're well, using Sketch and drawing some boxes. Does it though? You're it's at a way more nuanced level. Yes, <laughs> which takes time to pull apart and understand what someone means when they say, "Oh, I'm a UX designer." Yes, as anything, if you distill it down to a single word, just like serverless, what does it even mean? So. Yeah. So did you choose a team? So it, yes, in the sense that I obviously um, my skills wouldn't, I don't really, am, I'm not qualified as a sysadmin somewhere and managing VMs. Okay. So it would have to be at a higher level of abstraction yeah. where people like myself who build applications and ship application source code instead of managing containers and Docker and all of that. Um, and I did, uh, so at Google, it's not necessarily a given that when you get hired that you already have a t- team or that you know what you're going to get hired as. It's just a generic product manager manager role. Um, I didn't go through that. It was clear that it was for Google Cloud and yeah. something at a higher level of abstraction. Gotcha. So what's exciting? What's, what's the big 
advances or cool things happening in the world of serverless that we should all be oh. excited about. Oh, wow. Who do you um, think is doing it well? That's a good question. Besides Google, because obviously. obviously. Of course. The f- so it depends on how you define serverless, whether you're interested in the programming model or you're interested in the I don't want to care about servers. And what's interesting to me is serverless to some degree has been around since App Engine and Heroku for now, uh, since 2007. Mm -hmm. And now Lambda, AWS Lambda kicked off this, oh, we have cloud functions and guess what? You just have to give us your code and it'll run. And then you have Zeit, which is the same thing basically. You don't have to think about instances and look, just give us the code. Don't worry about anything else. And Firebase so, recently did cloud functions too, mm-hmm. which are based on Google Cloud Functions, right? Basically, so you really have to tease that apart because one of the concepts isn't new, but there is now a lot of energy behind it that was never behind when it first, like App Engine and, and, and Heroku, sort of first time. Why do you think that is? I don't have a strong sense that I know. I would guess that it's really easy to reason about the small surface area that is a function and get excited about it and say, ooh, I look at it and I understand everything. And so then most hype cycles are about things that are superficially awesome. That's how I would, so it's, oh, I can judge it by its cover, think I know everything about this, stamp of approval. Okay. And maybe that's a little bit of what's going on. The other thing that's going on is it's gotten easier to separate things into smaller bits of code and pieces, Mm -hmm. you know. So we used to have huge monolithic applications that would handle everything. And then the whole microservices hype came along. And now microservices are way too big. So you have, I don't know, Pico services, I guess. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of like in the, the, the node world, everything has to be a module. Mm -hmm. And that module needs to be split into seven other modules because it's way too big. Um, so maybe some of that has has it going okay. has for it too. How does it feel to be an NPM contributor now? With I can- am. <laughs> with Canvas. Oh yeah, you guys open source some stuff. Oh, I Sam see. Sam texted me that day. He's like, I'm an NPM contributor now. Like, I see. Yeah. Cry emoji. Yeah, we have some dependencies that were just internal before. And now that we open sourced everything, we had to make them available to everybody else. I was an NPM contributor before because I have a very useful module which just returns the alphabet. Because <laughs> Shut up. because no. everything else would be too big and monolithic for the JavaScript community, so I wanted to make sure that I have a really small, nice module. Oh, for God's sake! Then there is another module that depends on this one that <laughs> returns the alphabet, but uppercase. <laughs> this is insanity, man. I don't know if there's anyone that has used it. <laughs> I think shit. I need access but to it, some it's letters. Maximum uh... trolling, <laughs> of course. It yeah. is just trolling. It's impressive. And I joke. I actually love. NPM and what they stand for. And I like what the JavaScript community in general stands for, which is, I think, to roll way back, the things that I want to work on, given the choice, are always things that make the table of software development more inclusive. I want to bring more and more people to the table of software development, mostly because I think it's fairly uncontentious that software is eating the world 
end. So in the future, every business is most likely going to be a software business. As in, there's not going to be a tech company. There's mm -hmm. going to be a transportation company that happens to use tech. And if we're not very careful about how we approach this problem and how approachable and inclusive we make this, you're going to have a small group of people decide. And to a degree, we already have this problem. But we have a small, fairly indiverse group of people sort of deciding what history is from then on out. Yes. And so I would like to make the, the act of writing software more approachable to as many people as possible. How, how does that look in practice? You can, if you think of it as a, a tunnel that you, you can start from the superficial side, which is I have a Google Doc, for example, and now I would like to not have to write every word myself or I would like to edit various chunks at a time. I can start by thinking of it in programmatic ways and saying, oh, instead of just manipulating one by one, can I just, in the same way that you would do in any code editor, say, okay, now manipulate these chunks with a command. Mm -hmm. um, so you can start scripting documents. And, and, and one example for end-user computing is what I would call this, or end-user programming, is Excel and spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. They're probably the best example of something that actually has worked. And so that's the top side sort of of getting as real, millions of people um, sort of there and then adding more and more abilities to that. So as an example, you could see how in a Google Sheet, if there is, in, in Google Sheets, you know, when you, for example, want to add two numbers together, you call the sum function. Mm -hmm. And imagine you wanted your own sum function or you wanted something more elaborate. It would be really cool if you just define your own function with primitives that you've already kind of understood because they're part of, sheets and now it's more powerful so you, you at that point you are a programmer or if you workflow from from apple or automator that's programming to some degree as well right? you're just automating things you're gluing things together and so you can start working on that and with canvas which was a competitor to google docs and very similar to dropbox paper we tried adding aspects of this programmability to it so you could interact with the document in a programmatic way in with JavaScript, which is not necessarily easy to learn for someone who isn't interested in learning about programming. But Canvas was built for like nerds, right? Like, isn't that what you? Isn't that what you? It was, but of, the I, obviously that's just the beachhead, sort of the yeah, the exactly. that's where you start, and mm -hmm. then you try and add more and more people mm -hmm. to it. Um, the flip side is if you, for example, both of you are working on an app right now, and if you rewind fifteen years you would have actually had to figure out how to provision a server somewhere. And most likely, maybe even real sort of metal, like a server would have to sit somewhere on a rack. And now you don't even have to, like that's sort of 2007 and so on. AWS EC2 servers are just now, you know, virtual machines. Um, I heard the craziest stories from Spotify about when they had serious, like actual servers in a closet somewhere that they had to pipe in custom, like cooling to in like this shitty closet in like a duplex. Holy shit. That is interesting. Given well, that Spotify isn't all that old, right? Yeah. It, it, you would have thought, I, I would have assumed that. I think they've been around a while actually. But, but working with Rasmus, like hearing those old stories of like how people had to build apps just from the get go was crazy. So now you don't have to do this and yes. you can rely because other people built those abstractions and made it 
as a service, quote, mm -hmm. you now get to work much faster. So now for you, you don't need a sysadmin and you don't need to learn that. So now you can focus on your actual application code. And if you take that to more and more logical extreme, I mean, there was like parse.com backend, mobile backend as a service and so on. If you just keep working on that, digging from the other side of the tunnel, eventually the things will, the two will meet and hopefully making software will be a lot easier. So that's where for me, serverless or whatever we want to call that is exciting is for someone like me that for the life of me, I never want to like configure a server, like do any of that bullshit. He wants the microwavable blue apron. I want, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I, that's why Firebase is so great to use for someone like me is the the barrier to entry is just so low. And as it becomes increasingly easier and more powerful, it's going to hopefully make building stuff more accessible to people like me that might not be yeah, interested I, in the server side or the hardware side or anything like I that. I think you can already see this. Um, there's a lot of code boot camps mm -hmm. out there where you learn how to code in whatever, N mm -hmm. months, maybe six months. And all of them focus on actual application code. They don't make you worry about the stuff that's beneath the surface. And they use things like Firebase or Heroku or whatnot. Um, so you don't have to reason about anything. It's already such a vast universe of things that you have to learn when you're trying to learn how to code. So make people worry, constantly work on making them worry about less. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's back up. Where are you from? I am German, and uh, when I was three, my parents decided that they wanted to move to Spain. So I grew up in Spain, went to uh, high school there, and then after I went to college back in Germany. And I thought I wanted to... Well, I didn't really put too much thought into it. It's just the, the typical, well, you should probably go to college. And uh, as a result, I ended up dropping out twice for two different, uh, uh, two different. Um, I don't know what you call it in the U.S. Is it a minor or major? I don't. I don't even majors. Know. Major. Majors. Um, in between that, I actually I started working on my own th projects, and the things that they would. What teach, were you going to school for? What were the two majors? Uh, economics and then uh, design. Okay. One of the things that I found frustrating was how far removed and how theoretical both of them were once you've had some experience in the quote-unquote real world. Now, looking back, I regret it and I sometimes joke and when I'm retired, I want to go back and get a, a, a CS degree. It just sounds very interesting to me if there is no pressure. You yeah. know, if you have the privilege of not having to, to consider what the outcome is, just learning about obscure I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so you had already built things before you went to college. Yes. When so, did you get into the general like interest of design development, whatever? This is a story that you hear very frequently. I think you I, were the band <laughs> almost. <laughs> I um, needed flyers for events and, and sort of nightclubs, and I was too cheap to pay someone else to do it <laughs> and so i said photoshop how hard can it be <laughs> and i applied lots of lens flares and as whatever one uh -huh. uh, as one does the typical self autodidact uh, yeah. design career um and then eventually i started a record label with a friend which 
as, I mean, a company literally who care. We produced, I think, three records. So it's not uh, what kind of what music? You would, electronic music. Nice. Did and you make music? I did not. No. So why did you start a record label? He's oh. German. If you're German, you have to own an electronic <laughs> oh, label. Oh, it's like a rite of passage <laughs> thing. Got it. Got it. Yeah, they make you do it. <laughs> <laughs> the government. No, I just helped a friend who was making music. Ah. And at the time, there wasn't really a place where you could buy electronic music the way that you could buy pop music on iTunes. But iTunes seemed obvious that this was the future. And Beatport didn't exist, which I don't know if it still does. I was just, yeah, I haven't thought about Beatport in forever. But so I wanted to make an online music store. And so I learned at the time, uh, Flash was all the rage for full-on apps. So I just taught myself <laughs> full-on apps, action script and, and whatnot. And that never really materialized because it turns out that going from not knowing anything about how the web works or really life. Um, <laughs> anything at all. It's very difficult to build a full-on store where you can accept payments and so on. At the time, Stripe and things like that didn't exist. So that never materialized, but that sort of got me into it. And then eventually I realized that, oh, you can actually, people need this skill and people want you to build things for them. And so I started consulting and all the, at the same time I was missing courses in, in college, basically. And worked with a bunch of companies doing design work from icon design to web apps and writing front-end HTML, CSS. So you but, taught yourself code? Yeah. Uh, I th it's really hard to deconstruct how that happened, but it was a little bit of action script, just, you know, gluing things, scenes together. And then, do you remember Joomla? Maybe that's still yeah, a Yeah, I remember Joomla. Yeah. So, uh, and MySpace. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> Who obviously, forget? Uh, a lot of bands were on MySpace and a lot of DJs were on MySpace. Tom's still like one of my and best friends. <laughs> Wait, top Tom, eight? Oh, top eight, baby. Um, He's number one in my top eight. Whoa, dude. Forever. It, the, the site's gone. I can't take it away. He, uh, so the, the, the DJs wanted custom looking MySpace pages. And it turns out that the horrendous markup at the time that MySpace was mm -hmm. is a great place to really learn the ins and outs of CSS. <laughs> Yeah. And so I switched from ActionScript and Flash to HTML and CSS. And I think around that time, sort of web standards kicked off the Blue Beanie book uh, from Zeldman. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, no more of this. Okay, I'm just hacking things together. I kind of want to learn. And so I just read a couple of books and tried to figure out how to, to build things. Can we fast forward and then come back to college? Yes. Uh, I read this post... Uh, I guess it was published this last week and it was about why is front-end development becoming so fucking complicated? And the person saw it from both sides is like from one side you have people that have been doing it for a long time and they look back at the olden days where the olden days uh, previously where maybe it wasn't as complex but it was a different set of complex problems versus today uh, it could be argued that Getting into front-end development is incredibly intimidating. You have things like React and CSS and JS and build pipelines and Webpack and Babel and I forgot. blah, 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 blah. And like all this context that you have to build before you can be productive as a modern-day front-ender. 
how do you think about that argument or like what's your perspective on on the state of someone that's trying to learn what you were learning back then but in today's world yeah to some degree learning if you just went took everything that i learned and just do it now that would almost i don't know how valuable that skill would be just because front end development like you said has changed so much i think i it's not that we're making things complex on purpose with all the tools you just mentioned it's that the base requirements of what people consider good software that's right have just constantly risen mm-hmm. and the tooling and the basic are lagging behind yeah so i think it's just the question is whether they will catch up and then it'll there is going to be another point in time just when web standards i guess were around and you could the web was beautiful website sites were exciting um or whether from now on it's constantly this catch up game I lament that it's more complicated and that you have to learn about way more things than you used to. On the other hand, it's also pretty exciting of what we can do now on the web. If luckily at least many of those things that you mentioned all speak the same language, even if it's like confusing how they all relate to each other. Yeah, JavaScript is becoming everywhere. <laughs> I mean it kind of was previously. Yeah. It were n- it would be nice if JavaScript was everywhere because it was a great language versus <laughs> ah, this old it's chestnut in the browser and you had no other choice. Yeah, if it's sort of hard to speculate on this, but if you put yourselves into the shoes of your younger self and you looked at the landscape today and you want to start building applications for the web, where would you even start? Or like, what advice would you give to someone that's in that position? First, I think I would probably, I'm not sure if I would be in this position because right (laughs) now mobile seems like it would have aligned more with my interests back then. So now my interests happen to be web, but because I'm also constantly moving further into the back end versus the front end. But if it were sort of now I'm done with high school, starting college and playing around, I would assume that I would do more on mobile just because that's where my peers would be. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. I think you would be a task rabbit building Ikea furniture. <laughs> or that. I may do that anyways. I quit. <laughs> to learn web, I actually struggle with this because sometimes people ask me, oh, where, where would you start? And it's really hard to break apart what you, what the unknown, like what you just take for granted when you look at things and look at the universe. So I don't have too much experience with the uh, hack, uh, what do they call them? Hackathons? Boot camps. Boot camps. camps. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't have too much experience. I don't know w- how good they are and how much you learn. They're expansive. I'm pretty skeptical They're about the model itself. very expensive. And... The thing I can only judge it by the end result. So we've it, it's we've interviewed at Heroku, for example. We always made an effort to try and hire more. Well, that's not true. We used to never hire junior people, and that's a problem because you should give people a chance and not as expect twenty five years of Swift development now. Mm-hmm. And so we made a conscious effort of trying to hire more people that were more junior. So obviously, you get people from these boot camps. 
And there were some amazing candidates and there were some not so great candidates. So it's really hard with that limited data set that I have draw any conclusions. I would say that probably those boot camps optimize for making you look hireable okay. in six, six months. And the question is, how feasible is that? Okay. So on the fence about recommending a boot camp. Yeah. And then it really, people learn in very different ways. Some people love teachers and love lectures. I personally get bored and can't stand them. And I prefer reading a book or, yeah, anything that I can control the speed of. Um, the thing is, I don't even know how to slice it. Like, should you learn JavaScript? Who really wants to learn JavaScript? There's nothing, people don't get into programming to learn a language which is why end-user programming isn't a thing right now. People get into it to solve a problem. But why do I have to learn about what types are and variables? That's not the domain language that I speak as someone who doesn't know how to code, and now I have to learn all of these. So I don't even know what I would suggest there. But clearly, if you had to only learn one single language and wanted to do, don't know what you want to get into, it seems like a good option to, do, to learn uh -huh. JavaScript. Because at the end of the day, you can build mobile stuff with React Native. Yes, uh, Sam Sophist would probably disagree, but yes. Sophist disagree <laughs> with something? Never. <laughs> okay. Well, that takes us back to college, where you couldn't stand the lectures. Yes, mostly because they seemed so impractical, and now I, I would say that I was probably wrong, but I can't turn back time. Um Eventually, I, because I was uh, consulting, the fact of sharing artifacts with clients was always very cumbersome. You had like transmit, and you, you know you could drag, you could I think pin a folder to your desktop and drag things in there. So said, okay, uh, FTP, this, uh, yes, FTP. Uh, this could probably be faster, and my life is screenshots anyways. And I end up pasting them into iChat, which is still a thing. And so I made a cloud app with uh, Nick Paulson, who's now at Apple, and uh, Larry, who's our back-end developer. I actually wrote the first back-end myself in PHP, and it was horrible. It could only accept one con like one upload at a time. Uh -huh. So if you wanted to upload, you would be waiting in a queue. <laughs> and obviously that didn't work. Um, I never, We never really intended on making this a product, but we put out a landing page saying, hey, we're working on something cool. This is what it does. And I think we also, uh, we saw, I think, 3,000 people signed up for the wait list. And that was way more than I ever thought we could That's talk to. Good. I had like yeah. 180 Twitter, Twitter followers, right? Now I have 81. But <laughs> um, Come a long way, my friends. And so we said, oh, maybe there is something there. And this is a real problem that people have. And then we started this. I think we were probably one of the first people who now I consider this horrendous and unacceptable, but we would make you sign up with your Twitter. So you would sign in with Twitter and then we would tweet on your behalf. Hey, I just signed up for X. But because we were one of the first people, they thought, oh, this is actually kind of cool. And this is novel. Um, now, obviously, this is the fastest way to. You just... started that, you motherfucker. Uh, that's so much it's responsibility. All your fault. <laughs> I'm not willing to accept You ruined that much. the internet. How do you feel? Um, so, anyways, we had uh, then it got to we had 15,000 users using Cloud App, and so over time it just became more of a thing. Not with us. You were still in school. Yeah. Okay. What year was this when you when you made it? Uh, don't ask me about years. Well, I'm 2008. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, I know I've been a member for at least five years, but like maybe I think 2008. uh, Nick Paulson was still in high school when he did this. Crazy. That guy is just crazy talented. Eventually, he just left Cloud App in the dust and said, oh, I'm going to Square, which was a good decision. And then he said, oh, now I'm going to Apple. So great moves. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, what happened is eventually we had lots of users and we had a business and people were paying for the service. It was full time. And we were running this on Heroku because we had bought into this tying back to serverless, to this idea of us not having to worry about any uh, servers really early on. And Heroku had this idea of just planet scale fairly easily. And so that seemed like the right approach. And we had written it in Rails, and, and that was the one thing that you could run on, on Heroku, so it all the stars aligned. And because Heroku was starting out at this, I think Heroku started in 2007, but uh, we were one of the bigger apps on Heroku, so as you can imagine, we would show up in their in their dashboards and and so on, especially because of the nature of the application, lots of small uploads and, and and so on. And I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but I think they reached out to sell us more stuff, you know, as you would do in any startup. It's like, oh, you probably need a better database, and and we got talking, and uh, they all signed up for Cloud App and tried it out, and they liked the the I guess the the experience of it, and so they offered me a job, and as the first product designer there. And this, I was, I think, employee number 14. Wow. And I was still in Germany at the time. They tried to get me a visa, and it took forever, I think over a year. And uh, so I was working remote for Heroku while running Cloud App on the side. And then I basically eventually said, okay, I can't do this anymore, and Cloud App was... um, I, I felt like I was neglecting it, so we decided to sell it, and that was in 2014. And then I focused for a little bit more on Heroku, and then I left Heroku in 2014, yeah, and uh, December. How did the process of selling a company that was like your side project feel? I th- letting go of something is always you have sort of conflicting emotions, mm-hmm. right? It's you're attached to it, and um, but what's the I'm sure there's a corny quote of, you know, if you love something, you have to let it go. There's um, a corny that quote was exactly the one. <laughs> yeah. um, I knew that I wasn't going to, it was at one point, it wasn't growing in a way that it would make sense for me to do that full time. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't willing to, I talked to a bunch of venture capitalists to see and they wanted to invest, but I, it was difficult from visa perspectives to I was still at Heroku and so on. And I just basically made the call, okay, we have to find a new home for it. And then the selling of it was pretty easy because a a friend of mine had asked several times before that whether we'd be interested in selling. So I just sent him a text message with a price tag and said, if you you can have it for this much. And they'd replied yes. And then due diligence began. They replied yes right away. Yeah. So do you think you sent a Number too low. <laughs> no negotiation. There is no way for me to know yeah. in the sense that could I have gotten more with very little effort? Yes, but since I wasn't willing to put in the effort, nor otherwise I could have kept it running too. Uh, I'm happy with it. So that's all. Obviously, matters, you I guess. could. Yeah. 
And then you, I think I had a time where they've been working on it, and I think there's now 20 people working on this, and they've they've since sold the company again, and mm-hmm. so it's a, still a thing. Like they're enterprise ready now, in air quotes. I, I I'm assuming I haven't used it in a while, not because mostly just I think the need for that tool has evaporated. Because well, can, I did just see you message Guillermo Rausch about like uploading things to now and having it <laughs> what you described in a tweet was basically cloud app yes the re- <laughs> but that's more intellectual curiosity than i think i have the need for that ah, tool wait, in wait, the sense that we need the context here of the tweet okay so i think uh zeit.co the the hosting uh, they probably would hate me for calling it a hosting company <laughs> um they recently launched static yeah. uploads and you can run your static HTML sites. Uh, you can just drag there. a whole folder that is a website, or you can drag an individual asset, whatever. It'll so just if make you a folder. Uh, drag an image, it just works, and then they give you a link. And I just asked, oh, can you give me a link directly to the file that I dragged instead of a file browser first where then I click on the image? And that, in a nutshell, is Cloud App. And I, it was mostly just curiosity because it's funny to see a platform like Zeit, that is so well designed that it lends itself to a thing that was used to be a product that had value. I, they, they're doing a great job. I'm uh, a huge fan of Zeit. I agree. It is some to some degree. I'm. It, it's frustrating to see that they are so good at marketing <laughs> their product, where to a lot of people it seems like they've invented a lot of these concepts. Mm-hmm. And then as someone who worked at Heroku, I shake my fist at Twitter and I said, no, we did this before, which is utterly ir- irrelevant, right? But still, yeah, they're doing a great job. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Well, tell me about Heroku. You came in early. You were the only product designer? Early-ish. So there was uh, Todd Matthews, who is a creative director and great illustrator, and he did a lot of the brand work early on, and uh, then myself. So I was the first product designer. But yeah, at the time I joined, the there was no Heroku dashboard, so there was no, you had to interface with everything through the CLI, which is great that that's the home for a lot of developers, but not every developer. And you want dashboards and so on. So um, that's more in the realm of product design versus an illustrator slash creative director. Sure. Yeah, I at Heroku, we basically learned we had to build everything from like there everything from scratch. So there was a CLI, like I said, but no interfaces, and so now you had to backport all of that functionality. And so there was a scrappy team, and we just I over the years I think I touched pretty much every aspect of of whatever interfaces there are, including CLI design, which was way more interesting than I initially assumed. Why is that? The constraints that you have, the words are any, all the things are words. You have nothing else. You mm-hmm. can't necessarily even rely on colors and, and, and formatting. You do some ASCII stuff, maybe. Yeah. And then that's a slippery slope, you know, because for example, there are some command line interfaces out there that render bar charts and spark lines and mm-hmm. stuff. And I haven't really decided whether I love or hate that, but it's one of the extremes. Um, <laughs> Because it's, well, if you're doing that, then just use the appropriate tool for it, which is a GUI. It's interesting, Zeit is sort of blurring the lines between the two. So they have a, uh, an open source project called Hyperterm, which it's because it's written it's with... It's just called Hyper now, right? 
Oh, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Uh, Get with the times, man. <laughs> well, I think it was built on another project called Hyperterm, and they didn't want to confuse that or something. I, or maybe there's a different one. I would assume that it was more of a trademark thing or I don't know. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. But they, because they built it on Electron and WebTech, they can render websites in there and mm-hmm. browsers and everything they want. And so that becomes really interesting because you can blur the lines between a command line and a dashboard. If I did, let's assume Heroku apps to list all of my apps, now I could see a pretty dashboard with graphs and, and so on. And so but obviously... If I want to blur the lines between command line interfaces and, and real GUIs, becomes an interesting avenue to do that. That seems like an interesting set of constraints to work inside of. It's like, because now probably what you want is a way to navigate all that UI with your keyboard uh, inside of a command line interface, right? To some degree. So Google just announced, uh, well, they, they have the assistant and you can type to the assistant, and now it's on iOS as well. So it's basically like Siri, but except for you don't just have to talk to Siri, you can also type to Siri. Yeah. So you can kind of think that's already what they're doing in the sense that I type a command, mm-hmm. and then what it returns may or may not be text. It could also be a widget that lets me book a flight or do mm-hmm. X. And it's funny because we don't have that for developers, yet we built to some degree a command line for the masses, which is yeah. what assistant is, right? So if I think of cloud, I don't know, maybe in my head it's like a very consumer-facing, like you made it very simple to share files, which is a generally a pain in the ass for anyone that doesn't know how to do that easily. Uh, like you said, you're using FTP, which is like, hell no, no normal person's going to use well, that. Well, so they did for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. But then cloud solved that, right? And then You still use FTP for S3 stuff, right? It's not it's not the protocol, but you use the client that you would normally upload things mm-hmm. to FTP. You're probably thinking of Transmit. From I, I've used Transmit quite a bit, yeah. but also like or CyberDuck. All of them have yeah, yeah. either FTP or S3. Yeah. Uh, I guess my question is like, what was it like developing for these different designing and developing for these different kinds of audiences? Like uh, Heroku, these are developers, and you got to know they're coming at that point. They were coming from the CLI. Versus cloud, where it's like maybe something that sits in the background. So the cloud app, I wouldn't necessarily label it as consumer, although we had consumer usage. But most of the paying people were professionals. Mm -hmm. So they were designers or people who used it for work. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, memes. But that's... um, It's still such like a a novel thing to a lot of people. Like, where do I get one of these Brin.io things? Like... What these links are great. How do you? How did you do? Like, do you still? So you still use? Cloud oh app? yeah, every day. Mm-hmm. Fast. Thank you. I mean, I not that I <laughs> yeah. benefit from it in any way right now. But C. Thank you for the legacy. Like, yes. Continuing. No, I mentioned I've, I've been a member for like or user for five years, six years. So I have. I still have an account, but it's uh, the on an cl.ly, which is the short link for mm-hmm. people who don't have a custom domain. So I still have my email address that I used to have. But I forgot the password. But because it's a company email, the normal regular, which is good, the normal regular reset password flow does not work for me. So the only way I could get access to my account is if I actually messaged the people who run it now. <laughs> hey, and so I've made this thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I haven't done that. But I, 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 bef- when we sold, I made a backup of my uploads 
of all my screenshots just because, oh, this is five years of my life, 25 screenshots a day. And it's basically ex my professional history at Heroku is mm -hmm. in there. But uh, yeah, I wish I could, I, sh I should probably work on getting access to that. Yeah, I started uh, doing the Dropbox automatic screenshot backups. I hate those so much. Why? I don't know. I just really do. It does the same thing. I, it works great. With I like Dropbox. Your URL. The reason why I didn't like them at first and my brain can't approach it with a beginner's mind is they used to cache the 404 slash its loading page, I think. So if you were to visit the URL before the upload was done, it would show you that page Forever. for perpetuity, uh -huh. even if the upload was done. And that was just bad. I, yeah. So, but I think they've since fixed it and I'm, I could, I would use it if I had that in requirement. But now with, I think most of it is just, we talk in Slack and yeah, wherever, yeah. and you can just paste the screenshot that's in your clipboard. So yeah. who yeah. needs the product? So anyways, going back to the challenges or, or what was it like designing at Heroku for this kind of audience that's coming from the CLI and might have a totally different CLI set of expectations. Design, like the more I dig into CLI tools, it's just so exciting to me how like creative people get with that refined set of constraints. It's so great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is a general people assume that designing for developers is completely different. But at the end of the day, we're all, all humans and nope. want the same nope. thing. Half of us are cyborgs and that's the half that programs. So I you can apply a lot of the <laughs> same principles that we, you would associate with yeah. good UI design with, with uh, command line interfaces. Um, I think developers may be more opinionated a little bit on, they, they put great value in their tools and they get this emotional attachment to their tools and you can hear them arguing about what the best editor is for ours. And it, it, to some degree, it's like it's like a chef's knife. It's you make it better over the years, and you hone it, and 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 so obviously, that way of thinking carries with it the responsibility of okay, well, I better do a really good job designing this thing if I want someone to use it because they care so deeply about their tools. The last thing I would ever want to do, I think. Maybe not. It's, well, I say this just having built a text editor for pros, but I wouldn't want to build an IDE or a text editor just because it's such a Herculean task. And to, you have to, Adam is, and Visual Studio Code are really exciting because they've gone from nothing to pretty much wide adoption in no time. And that's, you have to applaud GitHub and Microsoft for pulling that off. It's, it's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's jump ahead. So you left Heroku in 2014? Yeah, so December, I think, December 2014 was uh, my last month at Heroku. And I basically, so we backed into starting Canvas, which, uh, so Oren Teich, who was uh, the GM of Heroku, he had left earlier, and we knew we wanted to start a startup together. And uh, Jonathan uh, Clem, who's... Uh, Engine, uh, lead engineer for the front end at Heroku, we sort of knew we wanted to work together and get something going. And one of the things that kept rattling around in our heads was this idea of uh, Heroku had a problem of tribal knowledge, like many companies, uh, just mm -hmm. floating around. So if you wanted to know why X was this way, you would have to tap on someone's shoulder and ask. And the culture of writing things down wasn't 
that evolved. And so as naive product people, we assumed that the problem was obviously tooling and we could solve it if we just had a better product in the same way that you think, well, I'm not productive enough because my OmniFocus task list isn't organized. <laughs> I need a new to-do list design. Yeah. Um, but there are, I think, if you look out, if you back then, 2014, if you looked at the market, there was basically in the cloud, there was Google Docs and nothing else. Uh, Quip started. But Quip started from an interesting premise, which is mobile first. And I don't know how that, how well that panned out for them except for that they got acquired for a gazillion for dollars. But $750 just, million. Dollars, let's yeah. just assume that there were other forces at play there too. Yes. The We were frustrated with this idea that Google Docs, because of what it needed to compete with at the time, which is Microsoft Word, still had this notion of there is a print layout and I can see the page on the UI and it's not necessarily responsive and the mobile story was kind of interesting and so we were frustrated with the fact that most of these were just fancy typewriters versus something more reactive where you could embed live content that changes over time like imagine you could have write a PRD or or something and you can embed a GitHub issue or a pull request and PRD Oh embarrassing I don't know what it Product stands for Proposal? Stock? yeah yeah there you go uh, <laughs> or spec or, yeah spec um and, you know, you would want the card, the Trello card, the pull request to just update over time. Mm-hmm. And those things just didn't really exist. Now, I think paper is a great alternative. And to some degree, Canvas and paper ended up building the same product. Obviously, I believe that... The one, plugins are pretty different, I think. That was a huge... Like, the, when you showed me those before they launched, I was just like, <laughs> like uh, what? I'm trying to be... I'm, I'm trying to overcorrect for I obviously have more of an attachment to Canvas, uh-huh. but empirically it made no difference because people did choose paper versus yeah. versus Canvas. Um, but they were pretty similar products, and mm-hmm. I think that paper has a very interesting road ahead of them. And it's it's um, I like the product. Obviously, we we had fewer resources as a startup than what someone like Dropbox can throw at at, at that problem. And ultimately, I think that was sort of what made us decide that maybe it wouldn't work out in the long term. Um, we underestimated the value that a product suite has. So if you look at the average company, and we from the get-go, we didn't want to make this a consumer product where you write down your your shopping list or whatever. I use it no for money. shopping lists all the time. Lots, of, <laughs> cool. lots of people do. And in fact, they probably, yeah, lots of people do. Um, but we wanted to go after businesses and companies. Because we wanted to organize that tribal knowledge. And um, the thing that is difficult is if you buy Google Apps, for example, you're not just buying it for Google Docs. You're also buying it because of email. Only for and, Gmail. And so on. And so just because you, let's say you p- paid for Canvas at X dollars per seat per month, you still have to pay for email because you're not going to drop email. Or... Dropbox, you're not gonna. Your need for syncing files and sharing files doesn't go away, and so one of the things that you have to do to actually be able to compete is build up a suite. If you're competing on that level versus Slack, some sort of to some degree inventing a different product category. I guess they didn't invent it, but you could say that they were the first ones that where it was taken seriously, um, a different product category, and we just the our timeline wouldn't align with building up a whole suite like this. 
Did you raise money for Canvas? We did, yeah. To some degree, we raised the in-between right amount. So we didn't raise enough to pull off something like Quip, which is raise, I don't know, I think tens of millions of dollars and then just go work for in a corner for six years with a huge team and see if you can build up one of those suites. And we didn't raise like a really small seed round where you basically prove product market fit and if it doesn't work out. So we were in that in between mm -hmm. and obviously hindsight 2020. But Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Like hindsight 2020, if you look back, like what would you have changed or done differently knowing what you know now about, I'm thinking like about the space itself, maybe about the product decisions you made, uh, raising money. I think I realized that the way that I would like to work, and this is by no means the only way to start a startup, is before I raise and before I turn it into a real thing, there has to be a there there. So if you think about cloud app, we didn't intend to make this a product and we're, oh yeah, this is going to be the greatest. We just built something and then s checked if there was a pull from, from the larger, from the audience. And so the way I would like to work is if you have an idea, build it as cheaply as possible, not raising any money, like do it on the side and then just see if there's energy and pull versus starting a company and saying, now we're building a product. Do you feel like you got that energy and pull from Canvas? This is funny. One of the things that I said early on to Oren is the thing I'm most, my co-founder, the thing that, one of my co-founders, <laughs> we're three. Um, the thing I'm most scared about is mediocre success. If you completely bomb and nobody cares, that's really easy to tell. And then you just make something different. You pivot. And if you're basically can't save yourself because people are signing up so fast, obviously also easy to tell. What's really difficult to tell is whether you're in like in between and it's like mediocre success. And I think that that's where I would put Canvas, where we got signal early on. I mean, you just said, wow, this blew my mind. Like mm -hmm. lots of people said that, this. To be fair, that was relatively late in the game for canvas too when when yes. the plugins came and i was like what you, you <laughs> can do how much like um so i think if i had to do it over i don't know whether i would try the same product again like i i wouldn't want to build something that relies on if you constantly every day say, ooh, if we just add these four more features, it's going to be great. And then you move and it's like, if we add these four more features, it's going to be great. It's, no, no, what's the one feature that makes it great? And that was, I think, maybe someone else, and I'm definitely too close to it at this point, could have done it differently and just build one single feature. But I have a hard time imagining with this specific problem scope of you start out as a place to write things down, which may have been a, the wrong problem statement to begin with. Um, I I don't see how you would do that. So I I think I would just I work on a different problem altogether. What about the mediocre success thing? Like you said, you felt like Canvas hit that. What you, do you do in that situation? Well, I I guess if I, I could add, <laughs> if, if I could answer this correctly, I would probably not be. We you know Canvas would still be a thing. I. I would say that it depends on what your outcome is. So mediocre success for a lot of companies, for example, that haven't raised money is a great 
great thing and you can just keep working at it and over time it just gets better and better. But the moment you raise money, the constraints that are put on you and the expectations are so different that I don't know whether mediocre success is a viable outcome. I mean, certainly the VCs don't care. Yeah, it doesn't pay your bills and it also doesn't help you enough to raise the next round, so. Yeah. Well, it may help you raise because you can and there's you know smoke and mirrors. But at the end of the day, it's not about whether you can raise, it's about whether you should raise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that was a lesson that I learned this time around too. It's just because you can doesn't mean you should. When should you? My God. Um, you, you had to so like, many, <laughs> you were walking so, down this path. Yeah, so many people are going to yell at me. Um, well, I, I, I would say the way that I would do it is mm-hmm. if I had built something where if I were to shut it down, people would come to my house and uh, metaphorically um, just hunt me to, why are you shutting this down? I need this in my life. If you then raise, you probably have like the beginnings of product market fit versus if you raise from the beginning and then try to you know back your way into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just my opinion. I It's not, I... I think I'm on the same page generally. Like I hate the idea of companies raising VC on an idea when they have no idea if it will work at all. Like it's it's almost like life support for a company more than like using it to scale. I'd rather see people raise money to make something good great. I think it depends on who you are and how you work as well. Okay. So and on the idea. So there are certain things that you cannot accomplish without raising a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's a fair. great example is Elon Musk, right? He just gets the, the ideas that he wants to solve are so big that how do you do this without raising money or yeah. putting in your own money? Um, and to that, uh, I have nothing to say. Then there is the, uh, like, that's great, right? Uh, there is the other thing, which is if you are really well-known and you've been, I don't know, the CTO of Facebook or invented Google Maps, <laughs> actually that happens to be the same person. Uh, yeah, that was very... <laughs> um, you're going to have to give up the same amount of your company anyways, roughly 20% when you're raising. So then you might as well raise a ton of money mm-hmm. because that's just how it works. And also you may have more experience dealing at larger scale. Like that's not, I don't have any experience in that regard, right? So I, that, I think I want to be very clear that the way that I would like to raise money is once I have an idea that has some legs and pull. Got it. The the last thing I'm curious about on on this, and then we can talk about some other stuff, is when you get feedback like Bryn gave you, like, holy shit, this is amazing. This is so cool. Like, I can't believe someone built a thing that can do this. How do you parse that and filter it to make sure you're not, like, I'm not saying it's noise. Bryn's not a bad I mean, customer, but like, one person Bryn is... didn't keep you afloat, you know? Like, how do you parse <laughs> ecstatic advice that might not, necessarily mean you're on the right path. Bryn, are you willing to write a $500 a month check? No. Exactly. There you go. So it, everybody <laughs> wants the $10,000 Ferrari. And the thing is, when you're building software that's um, for businesses, at the end of the day, you want them to pay you. I mean, to some degree, it's like even Slack is like not enough. People pay $250 per seat for Salesforce licenses Mm -hmm. and $5 per month 
proceed isn't enough i would completely think that like 50 dollars a month would be in like suitable within that would be great obviously we would not have shut down canvas (laughs) if that was the case yeah but i think the conversation shifts very quickly between i'm excited about this and i want to use it and it's free and it's great but then when it comes to actually taking out your credit card that's a really different situation so what you actually want to be in one of the we at heroku we used trello a lot. Mm-hmm. I think we had thousands of Trello boards. We were fanatic users. And Trello was free. Mm-hmm. And we were scared that Trello would go away. So we were basically saying, you don't have a way for us to pay you money, but please take this check. Mm-hmm. Just because that's, and that, once, if you have that level of commitment, it's a very different story. And yes, we had people who had, would have similar reactions to, to Canvas, but not in the order of magnitude of where it would have made a difference. So how do you get from this people being ecstatic about the idea to building the thing to getting a check for it? Like, um, it's not real until someone pays you for it, right? But you have to build it in order for someone to pay you for it. So like, how do you balance those two? I see. Well, ideas are cheap. Everybody has great ideas. All of your relatives are, oh, I have this app idea. Uh Uh-huh. When people came to us and said, this is great, it wasn't just on the idea, it was also on the execution, right? It was yeah. a thing that was working. But that the thing is, you had to build it, right? Like, is there a way to figure out if that excitement will translate into dollars without actually having to go through the whole execution phase and spend a lot of time and money and blood and sweat and tears? That's a good question. I think what you would want to do is get to the point of where you know whether someone's going to give you the check as quickly as that's the the, yeah. the goal, right? Like as quickly as possible. And so the question is, how do you validate your hypothesis that you're starting your company around as quickly as possible? And maybe with Canvas, one of the things that we constantly said is, oh, if we add these more ten more features, it's mm-hmm. going to be great, and then we'll be able to validate. And in reality, it's no, no, no. You have one feature that you've built in three months. I, again, I don't want, this is not a prescriptive way of, you know, this is how I'm thinking about how I would do it next time. It's you spend three months getting to a point where your prototype is close enough to, and it just has one core hypothesis that you want to test. And how do you validate that? And of course, there's always going to be noise and there's always going to be, and it, 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 there is no one way to figure this out. But I think we it took us to some degree too long. Got it. Um, one, I don't know if you know this, but Heroku, when it first started, and this was before my time, but it was actually an online IDE. I didn't so know you could boot, like, click a button and create a new Rails app, and you would have your directory structure on the left of the Rails and stuff, and then you would open it up, and I think they built their own editor, everything. And then you could just make some changes and click play, and it would run in the browser and it was the fastest rails hosted like from zero to having something running and it glitch i think glitch is doing this right now mm-hmm. which is really cool i i love glitch i just can't stand the visual design <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's very too, distracting it's too cutesy for me but uh, they seem to be doing well so um and the feedback was well i'm writing my rails app in my local editor and I'm then copy and pasting the code into your online editor just so that I can have it running. So I just want to press that play button. 
Yes. It's, so it's the play button that's valuable. And then the co- the founders of, of Heroku came up with the Git push Heroku master interface, which I think to me is still one of my favorite interfaces, uh, period. Burned, burned into my brain. <laughs> and uh, that's that was the real product, right? So if you have that kind of thing, and it's it's to some degree it's a pivot, but it's not a huge pivot. And perhaps if we had had our validation cycles had been shorter, we could have had a bunch of those early on and maybe landed on something. Um, but yeah, it, it, really, I wouldn't have wanted to start anything to begin with hmm. as, okay, here's a company versus, no, 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 let's work on some ideas and see where this takes us. Mm-hmm. And then we start the clock on the company and on the money. What does Heroku mean? I don't know. I think it is a mashup of the words hero and haiku. That's a but hypothesis. That is a, I would, yes, that is, uh, I'm 80% sure. I may <laughs> be wrong. That's not a very good percent. <laughs> and the only thing I know is that when Japanese customers would come into our office, they would say, what's Heroku? It sounds like an old person's male name, like, you know, like your grandpa's name in, in Japanese. So I, I don't know what it stands for. Maybe that's it. I do know that the Heroku logo, the lowercase, there's a little play button. It's like an H. Oh, okay. under like the H and K, but there's a little play button because that's the button that you play to get your app running. Uh, shit, I'm gonna have to go Sneaky. look at that again. It's like the FedEx FedEx arrow and the FedEx logo. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You're the modern Saul Bass. <laughs> Did you design that logo? No. Oh, so you're not the modern Saul Bass. I'm not. No. Someone else is the modern Saul Bass. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of the founders that did it. Okay. Uh, now that you're PMing, do you miss anything about the pixels? The pixel work, the tools. I I think it's actually been quite a while since I've really just worked in Sketch. Even P- PMs at, aren't allowed to use it, right? Like it, it yeah, stops you with like so, a modal entry. Like no, no, no. I am super excited that not just that I can use Sketch, that we have another PM on my close team that loves and uses Sketch. So uh, I I believe strongly that when you're building products and you have this sort of trifecta of product management, product design, and engineering, that there should always be a force, like if it's a Venn diagram, it should be a force that draws everybody closer together as far as the skills go. Mm-hmm. And an engineer should be interested in, oh, let how do you do, air quotes, UX, or what does that mean? Or what does a good product mean? Or how do you market a product? And a product manager should be like, oh, what's this design thing? And I think the closer you can make that loop of feedback, just because eventually it's in one person's brain, it's like the mythical unicorn. It's like, so the closer you can make a team resemble that, I think the better it gets. Obviously, there's still a lot of room for specialists and people who are just amazing illustrators and so on. But when it comes to quickly building new product ideas, I think that structure works really well. So I'm excited that PMs at at least my close team are, are into Sketch. They're using it for what? Like actually making mocks and visuals and all that kind of stuff? There is this concept of this is a PM level mockup. Ah. And so it is disclosure. Also, it is also very important to label it that way. <laughs> which I think it's fine. You don't want to step on other people's toes and everybody has their area of responsibility and you want to be respectful of that. But yeah, so they use it to Yeah. I I wouldn't want to say prototype, but share ideas and, and make them more concrete than a paragraph of text. Of the trifecta, then it seems like engineering's maybe left out of that if they wanted to like what would they use? Well, for? in 
Yeah. Uh, well, it depends. Until. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good question. I don't know. Well, this this gets us into the how do you bridge the gap between right? Yeah, UI slash visual design and engineering. I think he went all over the map, but was trying to get exactly to that bridge. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I see. What we you got did. here. I see what you did. We there. got here. That's uh, it. Was a segue <laughs> in name only. <laughs> I'm I'm impressed. Actually, thanks. <laughs> I do this for a living. <laughs> Kind of. Actually, kind of. <laughs> yeah. To some degree, if you think about what our workflow right now looks like, if you don't have designers that can code, and let's not get into that whole thing, because I don't think you should be prescriptive of what a designer should or shouldn't do. But a lot of times, especially in bigger established companies, it's there is some document that a product manager wrote and then it gets passed down and then there is a designer that makes mockups and then there is eventually it gets thrown over a wall and the interface is kind of lossy and then an, uh, an engineer sort of codes them up and we've been trying to break that down more and more and there are interesting projects right now that the bigger companies that are sort of more avant-garde like Airbnb and, and Facebook and so on are working on to bridge that gap and they're approaching it from a very systematic way of they have day-to-day business problems and they don't have time to mess around and they just need to solve this and, and um, this is where the whole hype around design systems and so on comes on and um, but then there's the let's, <laughs> let's the hype you real? can't catch the the eye roll in the microphone <laughs> yeah that was an eye, that was a hard eye roll <laughs> well now you're making me now I have to explain yes, you why do. the eye roll yeah. um, it's not that I th- design systems are useful it's that design systems have become the new skeuomorphism, which is everybody gravitates towards them, and it's a really interesting and shiny problem. And in the meantime, no one's focused on designing products that people actually want. They're all just working on the design system. And so to some degree, I think people who are thought leaders, maybe there's a better word for this, air quotes thought leaders, have some (laughs) responsibility to when they talk about the things that they do at work, they have to put it in the right context and in the right framing. And the problems that someone like Airbnb or Facebook has just is not a problem that someone making, working on a 10-person team somewhere in a, I don't know, startup or whatever. It's just, it's a different scale of problems. And I think you have a responsibility of making sure that when you hype up things like design systems that you're saying, hey, this is a tool that solves a problem that we have. You may not have this. And this is not design. Because otherwise what happens is people who don't have experience end up associating that with design. And then we have the entire industry just jumping on that. And we're all just making sort of Brock Miller style, you know, design systems that look great on Dribbble. And the reason why I equate that to the skeuomorphism is Skeuomorphism is a really useful tool, and right now all of our interfaces are flat, and it's a reaction to that, but it's that was your out, so you only had to focus on how beautiful the gradient or the box shadow or whatever of the button are uh, is versus the label on the button. And the thing that actually provides value to the end user is the label on the button. And so I'm very against these, or I want everybody to be conscious of the forces of hype cycles, and right now design systems are definitely very hypey. Yes, they are very hypey. But I, they solve a real problem, and so I just want to make sure for everybody who's working on one, your work is <laughs> Disclaimer, deeply... it's, it's cool, it's, it's cool. Yes. It's also, like, it's a weird problem in that anyone can say they're working on a design system no matter what the scale of it is because 
fundamentally you can't say something isn't a system even if it's like not a very well fleshed out system (laughs) it's a bad system but it's a system (laughs) i'm sure people who know more about the definition of what consists uh, like what is a system would i have a reason but i i agree with you yeah it's it's just one of those then we get into semantics well i think um for me it's like a over time uh that kind of stuff will just become more accessible and commoditized like i think of bootstrap helped you spin up like a pretty decent ui for a web app maybe there will be the equivalent for design systems what Uh, if every time someone's like i'm a design system designer oh you're making bootstrap cool yeah i don't know i it's a very big problem at places like facebook and airbnb and not such a big problem at these small startups Mm mm-hmm but Just perhaps the timeline is Facebook and Airbnb figure out ways to distill a lot of these things into smaller and smaller chunks where now the small startup can use the 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 small bits of those tools that are actually really useful to day-to-day work. I think there's a great analogy here to engineering, which is the problems that Facebook and Google and all the big ones see as far as how do you scale an engineering culture and what does just scale of your actual infrastructure look like is very different than what startups need to focus on about scale. Like who cares about scale? You'll figure it out later. But the work that all of these big companies have put into scaling benefits everybody because the tools that you're using now for your app basically are have been in production at a place like Google for I don't know, probably decades now, and sort of those lessons learned. So I agree, that's definitely the case. And I think time is going... This is why maybe just picking on design systems is a little mean and I shouldn't do it, but I think time is going to probably look back poorly on my comments on design systems in the sense that I do think they might be more common and cheaper and easier to get get off the ground. Um, One of the things that's interesting is when we... Like if you go back, I don't know, whenever Dreamweaver was a thing and Photoshop, you would design, designers would spend all their time sort of designing the entire page, and it was all about pages. And um, without front-end JavaScript frameworks, all websites were discrete pages that you would transition between. And so the tools were kind of like that, and then we were trying to sort of smash them together in a thing like Dreamweaver, where you would try and do the, okay, let me just both visually design things and code, and the code it would produce was horrible, and the visual um, degree of, of, of how you could customize things was horrible too. But the thing that's happened since then is that the concepts that designers deal with on a daily basis and the concepts that front-end engineers deal with on a daily basis have become more and more similar. So Sketch has symbols, which are basically components. And not only have those been, like now we basically break these big pages into individual components, both on the front-end side and on the the design side, it's that we are now sharing to some degree of vocabulary. So the the, um, inheritance and um, uh, subclassing and so on are concepts that designers implicitly do now, where you have a symbol and then you can create you can have like shared styles i don't know what they're called in sketch like i think shared styles yeah okay, shared styles. okay. Yeah, yeah. so that's the kind of like a mix in right mm-hmm. so you can have classes you can have subclasses and then you can have um you can override certain properties right so and if you think about it that's basically 
a lot of what programming is. And so now we've come closer. And the question is how soon before we can bridge the gap? And I mentioned Airbnb, sort of John Gold is working on this idea that you can render Sketch from React components. But what if you, I mean, this is easy to say if you don't actually have a job and need to get stuff done. <laughs> so what if you can invert that and say, well, the reason we want that flow, the one that John Gold is working on, is because code is the source of truth. But in the future, does it have to be? If you could make, let's say you checked in a sketch file, and then you could import sketch file component foo from that sketch file, and then add behavior on top with like whatever clicks and so on. Um, why wouldn't you just check in the, it's JSON, right? It's not that it's any different, right? So why wouldn't you do that? And we do this with, with um, cover your ears, Sophus, but we do this with Interface Builder on the Xcode side. And people don't love it. And that's maybe because of certain constraints that were there that are maybe not there in the front-end world on web front-end world. But I think that this gap can be bridged. And that's very interesting. And the more open these formats like Sketch and Figma and so on become, the easier. And so eventually, maybe we'll have a place where you check in your design, your just components, maybe layout is still further out because layout is hard, but individual components where you define how they resize and so on, and you check them into source code. And then I can just require one and then call it in my React code, right? Like that would be really cool. I feel like we're inches away from that. I do too, especially now. So I wrote a prototype, like, I don't know, a few months back when yeah. uh, I was in between jobs and had nothing to do except <laughs> for play with Zelda and, and you know, Sketch. And um, one of the things that was somewhat annoying is the way that Sketch 43 uh, specified how things resize. It was basically, an, as far as I can tell, an array of three magic different versions of how it resize. And I said, oh, it would be really cool if it was actually constraint-based because you can then turn it easier and much easier into code. And so now the, the last update of Sketch, I think, has constraint-based layout uh, resolution. So I, it seems pretty doable to me right now. I think there's obviously a big gap between having a prototype where you can change the color of a button and it reloads in, in React and so on. And like, how do you generate um, accessible markup that's not terrible and so on. But I think I think we're really close because the worlds are just sort of combining. It's the same language, so it's only a matter of time before. The Venn diagram is mm -hmm. like becoming, the overlap is yes. getting better. Which is very exciting. I agree. We're over time. But at the end, we always like to ask, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? And you can't say nothing because you sleep very well. We get it. Well, then the it's just what rattles around in my brain during the day. Basically. That's right. Um, I, I'm somewhat worried about how we are going to adapt. And this is a long-term thinking. It's if the robots are taking over and the robots are doing all the work, most of our society is built, uh, the way we value things is always built around money. And sadly, at least in, in, in a capitalistic society, it's, money, it's your job, and that's your status, and, and so on. Like, if all of that goes away because you don't have to do anything and we just tax the robots and the companies just pay us universal basic income or whatever, we are not equipped for that at all, I think, and just our society. And I, I, I have no idea how we're going to bridge the gap from the state that we're in today to when that is reality. And then I fear that this reality is going to happen in some accelerated form and we're just not equipped for it right like it's i think the single biggest um industry 
of like a single job, like uh, truck drivers in the U.S. I think there's four million or so, or transportation. If they go away, that's how a do we huge amount of how do we handle this? Yeah. If we can't handle, I don't know, maybe it's a one order of magnitude less, or maybe even two of uh, coal miners, for example. And so I'm worried about that. Well, so I, I heard some statistics recently. Coal miners is a significantly lower number, but like I think it's like there's 20,000 or something. Like there's there's not as many as you'd think. And, and I'm probably getting that number wrong, but that was what I took away. It was less than I thought. And then in something like 28 states, uh, truck drivers are like, that's the, the most... That's the job that the most people have. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, that's nuts. And then one of the things that's really interesting is that so far universally, no matter who I talk to, when I tell them maybe the job is not going to be around, if it's your job, they are they universally say, yes, but my job can't be replaced. Yeah, that's my next question. And so one of the things that I'm actually not sure about is if the my job as a well, it's a my job as a designer moving around square boxes on a canvas, that seems fairly easy to replace in comparison to truck drivers. Because if I move the box into the wrong area, nobody dies. And also the apps that we use are so parameterized that it seems mm-hmm. fairly easy. And then people say, well, but we're all creatives and we're special snowflakes and we have taste. And what does that mean? But then you have people, I forget where it is. I don't know if it was MIT. It's some one of the famous colleges in the US. They had a bunch of people work on um, an AI that can compose a symphony and professional musicians cannot distinguish that from a human composed symphony. So the question is, as a designer, are you really more special than someone who can compose? Yes, I'm unique. Especially at companies that have just pulled tons of user data all the time, it's just going to get easier and easier for them to replace workforce. Yeah, so I think that's one thing that sort of keeps me up at night. But I mean, should it really? It's probably at least a decade out, I would assume. I don't know. It doesn't keep me up because of me not having a job. I don't care. It's because there's going to be potentially millions of people who are out of a job. That removes like the bottom end of the market like if, if it replaces a bunch of design work it starts with the worst design work the stuff you don't want to do it can follow simple rules that sounds great well no because right now there are people that sounds great for me but now there are people who rely on that and that's how they get uh that's how they make their living and so you still have to take care of that right that's like saying mm-hmm. well i don't want to be a coal miner but, but does that but like- you still have to somehow create a space where that person who can no longer do job a can contribute to society in a way that they feel they're contributing. But doesn't that mean B. they can work on like a better problem? Yes, like, but w- you're within design specifically. Well, like, within design, that is maybe possible as long as we have an avenue to educate. It's the same problem all over again, mm-hmm. right? Are you really going to retrain someone? Is are we equipped to that? Are like for that? Are companies willing to spend the money to retrain people? Mm-hmm. Or is it easier to throw them under the bus and say, well, we have our minions and robots that do this now? Throw and them under the self-driving it, bus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. There you go. Hmm. Um, the other thing I think that I generally worry about is, on a more short term, is the diversity of our industry. Mm-hmm. And so I think for closing words, instead of pointing out something where people can follow me, a white dude. There's plenty of us. Oh, we weren't going to give you that opportunity. Great. Um, I think uh, I would point out uh, 
womenwhodesign.com. I, I think it's yeah. if you just Google, Google's great. Use Google. It's um, at women who design <laughs> on Twitter. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Just crazy. Women start. who design, and there's yeah. a. Uh, I a recommend you just take your followers, which if you're white and male are probably all white men. Just unfollow all of them and just follow everybody on that list, and you're gonna be you're you're doing great. So the the day the post came out that started that, I added 200 new follows, which was crazy. I uh, yes, I so I subscribed to everybody on the page as a list, and then I think I added one third of the list as if it just yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, new perspectives is good. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get as like what what do you want to get out of that? Like, what's the value of just following these people on Twitter? I there is maybe, and I, let's stay clear of politics, I guess, on the podcast. But to some degree, the same things that no matter what your inclination in politics is, where you think, "Oh, look, this is my viewpoint," and I see something on Facebook or on Twitter that affirms this, mm-hmm. makes me feel great. And the moment I see something that I disagree with, makes me feel bad. Um, I think it is really important to make a conscious effort to expose yourself to different ways of thinking. And um, I think there are just things that if I, it is very likely, although not necessarily true, that if I follow 10 people with the same background and sort of the same, um, yeah, same history, that their viewpoints will be very similar. And so it's like, how do you get out of that? And how do you follow people who think differently about problems and, and, and situations cool we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh thanks so much for hanging out man thanks for thanks having me. me that was an awesome episode thank you so much to max for coming to hang out that honestly was one of my favorite episodes we've done in a long time that conversation was awesome if you enjoyed it come hang out in our spec community on spectrum that's at spectrum.chat slash specfm uh, we've got channels for all of our shows, including Design Details, where we're sharing the episodes, chatting about what's going on, getting the guests in there to talk. Uh, come hang out. Before we go, thanks so much to our sponsors that made this episode possible. One more time, Fuse is helping you build native iOS and Android apps easily, together, faster, better, stronger. Fuse is enabling teams to work together better to produce native iOS and Android apps. If you want to check out their plans, they've got two different plans. One is free and one is paid. The paid one is not meant for everyone. It's just meant for teams and people who have income already. Uh, If you want to use that and you want to save some money on it, we can save you 50% off a year if you use code DESIGNDETAILS at checkout. So if you're ready to start building native iOS and Android apps and stop prototyping, go to FuseTools.com. Of course, thank you to Figma for sponsoring the show. They're hiring. They want you. They're looking for a design advocate and a design writer role to join their incredible team who we love so much working on an amazing product. Can't recommend it enough. Uh, if you want to learn more, go to figma.com slash careers. Feel free to get in touch with Bryn or I if you want to learn about Figma. Bryn worked at Figma. I had this role. It's a very good role. You yep. should do it. That's at figma.com slash careers. And of course, uh, if you're going to be at Vectors Conference here in San Francisco coming up in a couple of weeks, Come hang out. We're on Spectrum at spectrum.chat slash vectors. If you didn't manage to get a ticket or won't be in San Francisco, we'll be hanging out and having watch parties on June 15th. Again, that's at spectrum.chat slash vectors. Thanks once again to Vectors, Figma, and Fuse. We'll see you next week.